Hello, everybody, and welcome to a, another bonus Chapo episode in our ongoing series of Strike Watch 2023. Uh, today, uh, we are joined by our good friend Alex Press, who is a staff writer at Jacobin and someone who covers the labor movement in a wide variety of publications. Alex, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Alex, you've been out on the West Coast for a minute now covering um, a number of different labor actions, but probably the most high profile of them being the ongoing uh, WGA and SAG after strike um, in, in Tinseltown, USA. Now, this episode will um, feature some of our men on the street picket line interviews that uh, we've conducted over the last week or so. But let me just start by asking you, uh, what have you been hearing on the picket lines um, covering this, uh, these ongoing strikes in the entertainment industry? I mean, it's a big question, right? Like there are a handful of key priorities for both the actors and the writers. Um, They overlap a lot and then there's some distinctions. Um, So I feel like starting there and then just kind of going to some of the some of the more interesting things people have said, you know, other things people repeat a lot. But first, AI. Right. And so for that, you know, the writers, as people listening to this know, the AI, you know, generated writing for television is awful. You see the posts all the time that just are dog shit. Um, And so really, it's not a huge threat right now for the TV and film writers. They just want regulation on it. They want to be able to make sure it's not being used for rewrites or literary value. For the the actors and the performers, AI is a totally immediate threat. Um, I spoke to this woman on the picket line outside of Netflix a few weeks ago. Her name was Stevie Nelson. Um, She used to host a television show for Nickelodeon that ran for a few seasons. And so there's a ton of footage of her hosting a television show you know, that she does not own that footage. And she talked about, you know, a actual Black Mirror episode where the studio could train an AI on that footage and then have her host shows forever, infinitely, a digital version of Stevie Nelson that saying things she'd never said, doing things she'd never done. So, it's you know, that's like the eye-opening, kind of like shocking thing, but there are more kind of day-to-day things, such as, you know, these background performers and voice performers who are just being without even realizing it, they've already given up their likenesses. And, you know, when you don't need background performers, that hits SAG's, you know, membership really hard. And then also it hits everybody else. You don't need costume designers if you don't need actors. You don't need makeup and hair all, and so on down the line. So that's AI. Hi, uh, my name is Bex Taylor-Klaus. I've been in the SAG union for over a decade now. I think I'm at 11 years. No, no, no. I just hit 10 years. (laughs) I just hit 10 and a half years. I did a video game where they wanted to scan my face, and we actually worked through negotiations where it couldn't be my face because they wanted in the contract basically to to own the ownership of my likeness, to own my face. And I wasn't willing to do that. And so they used someone else's face for the character. And that's what I think we're at that point where they want to do that with all of us. They want the capacity to own our faces in perpetuity, and we need to keep that from happening. We, not all of us know that this is a risk. I was lucky enough to have an, a, an, a lawyer on my team who caught it and told me, hey, I know you wanted the deal done, but we can't, I can't in good conscience let you take this deal with this clause. And not everyone is lucky enough to have that. Not every lawyer knows that this is something that's going on right now. Now everybody does. In the last couple of weeks, it's become like common knowledge. But before, in the last couple of years, it's been creeping up on us. And so a lot of people have signed up and gotten scanned, not realizing that that's what they signed away their likeness forever. And so now- 
now that we have this knowledge of it, it gives us this chance to fight back and own ourselves. Because that's, that's something Hollywood's always wanted to do, is own its people, and so that they don't have to pay us. They own us. They just get to make money off of us. We need to keep that from happening. A uh, woman that remain on the street in the shadows of 30 Rockefeller Center at the WGA East in solidarity with comedy writers Picket Line. I'm here with John Hodgman. Yeah, John, you know, a lot of the conversation is around AI, and that's very sexy because it's uh, technology, and it's creepy and interesting and scary, and if you mess around with any of the AI, you can see the, why executives and studios have dollar signs in their eyes, because it's a perfect combination of, like, we can save cost by getting computers to act and write, and also we get to finally tell them, you don't count. And you don't, and, and it's a perfect blend of cost savings and contempt for creatives, right? Like uh, Tim Robbins and Robert Altman's The Player. You know, they yeah. finally figured out how to do it. Get yeah, rid yeah, of the directors yeah. and the actors get rid of them. and the writers. And, yeah. and look, I understand. We are, we are unreliable pieces of shit. <laughs> we are, we're unreliable. We're temperamental. We're difficult. But, you know, I don't think that AI is ever going to write comedy particularly well, yeah. well. You know, and I don't think that AI is ever going to act particularly well. But when you talk about, like, the younger generation, you start replacing actors with eternal recreations of existing stars. People are going to get exhausted of seeing, like, I love Morgan Freeman, but it's time for new actors. Do you know what I mean? But in particular, if you start assigning, and it'll happen faster than acting, because I think writing is the, the writing AI is closer now to writing basic dumb scripts. But you start assigning those scripts to AI, though AI doesn't have life experience. And like, AI doesn't have first-person life And comedy experience. especially is so, like, culturally context-specific. Like, right. it's hard to imagine a computer program would ever have, I don't know, the self-loathing necessary to be a good comedy writer. Absolutely. Never mind the fact that all the life experience AI has to scrape from is the existing Internet. Yeah. And a vast majority of what's on the Internet has been put on the internet since its invention, more or less in the mid-70s, has been put there primarily by cis, white, straight guys. Yeah. So you are losing <laughs> so many stories if you just assign story writing to the internet. You know? For like the reality of what it's like to be a WGA or SAG member, um, what, what do you find is like um, the, the reality of what it's like to be a writer and actor in Hollywood today like versus what people think is the reality of it based on like the lives of people whose names they know? Sure. I mean, the statistic you hear a lot on the picket lines from the actor side. And to be clear, SAG after a, of the members that are striking right now, it's one hundred and sixty thousand people. So that is not celebrities, right? There's, I mean, we do have celeb inflation right now in America. It's a pressing issue, but that is a very small percentage of SAG-AFTRA's membership. They're not all Tom Cruise. So they'll say, they'll point out that 87% of the membership in SAG-AFTRA does not qualify for its healthcare plan. And that bar, the threshold is around, I think, twenty-six dollars or $28,000 a year in earnings from acting. So the, the, the fundamental kind of answer is that these are people who have other jobs, right? They're waiters, they're flight attendants. You know, some of them are also on strike as hotel workers, as members of Unite Here Local 11 in Southern California. So I would say that's the primary thing is that people think, you know, they are theater kids. They're not just like us. But that said, they basically are working class people. Right. They're just there's there are some rich people. And it's kind of impressive that that these unions get them on their side and defend their their poor members. But mostly they're just regular people. Uh, 
my name is Catherine Shatina. I'm a writer in the WGA and a WGA captain at Netflix. And I think that a lot of people see, you know, they see the celebrities who are the A-listers. They see Tom Cruise uh, making millions of dollars and they assume that that's what everyone is making and that's simply not the case. Um, for the vast majority of people who are working in this industry, especially people who are trying to break in, this is a, a working class industry. Um, and I think that it, it's a real misconception of what people are actually making. And, um, you know, the, the, for SAG, the cutoff to get uh, health care is $27,000 a year, or excuse me, $26,000 a year. And most members of SAG don't make that. So obviously this is a broader labor issue. I would say that about 1% of SAG-AFTRA members are that elite level that, that the Hollywood industry has done such a good job of con convincing the public all of us are. That's only about 1% of our union. The majority of our union is actually background performers. 86% 86, 86 of union members cannot make the requirements for, health, for getting health care, for getting SAG health care. And this is something that's been going on for a long time. And I think the industry... There's a lot of infighting of like, oh, the actors are spoiled on set. Well, we get treated as badly as the rest of the crew does behind the scenes. We get the better treatment on set, which is totally abysmal, by the way. All the rest of the crew needs better working conditions. This is something that I want to go to bat for IATSE when it's their turn to mm -hmm. negotiate. I guess like the, uh, the, the big thing hanging over all of this is... This cataclysmic shift that's occurred in the entertainment industry that's being called like the streaming model and like the rush from all of these uh, the studios and now these like monopolistic tech companies to basically blur the lines between production and distribution and but like are now doing this in the context of a familiar story to the economy overall. As interest rates get raised, the shareholders of these companies don't just want infinite growth. They want profits. And where is that money going to come from? Well, it's going to come from Xing out labor costs as much as possible. So that hence you get things like AI replacing actors or even writers. Mm -hmm. How have they, like the people you've talked to, like how is streaming affected um, their bottom line, their like their month to month budget and just like the job and you know profession of being an actor or writer? Yeah. So there's a couple things. I some good examples I got from the picket line from people dealing with this. But first, I'll say that, you know, a big part of streaming and it leads to another of the key kind of proposals for both the actors and writers is that while you still get a residual, you get an annual residual. It is nothing compared to what people used to get in linear television. A residual is, you know, every time there was your show reran, um, you would get half of what you were paid for for that episode for the first rerun. Then you would get half that for the next so it actually could add up to quite a lot. Say you made 20 grand for doing an episode of SNL. It reruns in a few weeks or something. You get another 10 grand check in the mail. Similarly, yeah, they're, they're you would like, get... Like, like the, the 12th guy in the writer's room on like Quincy M.E. has a house in Malibu today because of residuals. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, I've been working on a piece for another publication and just a guy mentioned an SNL writer that he got a check recently. You know, that was substantial and it was for 25 years ago, a sketch he wrote. Um, so they, this is a, this was really, you know, a substantial part of people's income and it kept them through because Hollywood, you know, you have you have droughts, right? You're not always working. There's slow seasons, whatever. Um, now, obviously, you know, I won't try to get too technical here, but people know that Netflix, you know, is not you pay as a subscriber. You get unlimited views. There's no such thing as reruns. It's also about global self-distribution. So there's no licensing for syndication. And so these residuals are basically nothing. Um, and so both the actors and the writers are proposing, you know, a viewership based residual 
But that would require that the studios, the streamers actually let them see how many people are watching their shows, which is fundamentally not what they want to do. Um, the streamers keep this locked up and secretive. You know, I've talked to former Netflix employees. Even they didn't know the numbers. I've talked to, you know, Mike Schur, creator of The Good Place and Parks and Rec. He doesn't know how many people watches his shows on streaming. Tony Gilroy, who just did the Andor Star Wars show, says, like, I don't know what my show is worth. And like, that's the yeah. fundamental problem, like whether you are, you know, a, a bit actor on a TV show or the showrunner of the show is that on these streaming platforms, like it is all kept in an, intentionally in a black box so that like, I mean, they overpay up front. Like that was the Netflix model where they'll give like Martin Scorsese $300 million to make a movie, but it's so that they can preserve everything on the back end. And then the, the method by which they do that is very intentionally keeping it, like, it completely vague about how many people actually watch or you know, participate in the consumption of the product that they're selling. Right. And that's both because, you know, there's a lot of speculation. Are they just totally lying and they're terrified that if they showed their numbers, open the books, all investors would realize they've completely overvalued these companies? Yes, probably that's the case. And then there's also what you said, the labor side, like nobody knows how much they're worth. Nobody knows how much they can ask for in a production budget or their own contract. So it's, you know, labor people call it information, information asymmetry, right? Like the boss knows everything. The worker knows nothing. It's really hard to negotiate for you or anybody else in that context. Hi, I'm Jess McKenna. I'm a double striker. I'm striking with the WJ and SAG and I'm a WJ captain and I'm from Southern California. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think like on the actor side, it's like watching more and more roles get reduced to reoccurring to save money from those minimum quotes. And the residual thing is huge. I'm sure residuals have been explained already, but that's basically the exchange we've made different than a copyright. It's the tiny piece of our work that we get as it's shown. Um, I, a lot of my work on set for SAG is in, the, is in voice acting. And I can say like, I can do a small one day part on a show, but if it airs on Cartoon Network, that residual is massive compared to being a lead of a streaming show. My voice is in the entire episode. It's in every single episode. And if it's on streaming, I'll see a fraction of those residuals. So that that should all operate the same. All that content gets viewed by viewers in the same way. So we should be paid in the same way at this point. I just want to say, like, to give a concrete example of something else here about, like, the, you know, people are talking about the slashing of the budget for writers. Mini rooms is what they're another big issue where instead of having, say, six staff writers for 22 episodes of a show, now you just have one showrunner who then has these part time contracted other writers for a few weeks. Um, the showrunner basically is charged with doing the whole show. Um, you know, I talked to somebody who who had joined WGA in like 2016. She was in her 20s. She'd only had mini rooms. And the consequence of that was she'd barely, if ever, been to a set, right? They aren't paying for the writers to stay once the production has started. So she has no idea how the business actually works. And there's no money for like mentorship or anything like that. And I mentioned that because I also talked, I mentioned Mike Schur, and he gave a really good illustration of kind of the consequences of this. So, you know, he's on the negotiating committee. He's a wildly successful writer, and yet he's become this kind of union militant in this strike. And he was saying his, the reason he did it is that he realized he could never have had a, the career he had if the system that exists now existed then. Right. So when he was hired onto the office, you know, Greg Daniels, who was the creator and adapter, taught him the ropes. Right. Mike had never written long form. 
He showed him, you know, how to draft, how to give up on drafts, how to like figure out what grips and art decorators and set designers all do. Um, and that is why he went on to be so successful, right? He figured out how to work the business. Now these are de-skilled workers. They're just working a couple weeks here and there, and that's that. Um, so it's a big deal. It turns them into assembly line kind of workers. I'm not sure people are aware that, you know, what streaming streaming shows have done and certain notorious for doing is getting rid of writer's rooms or really like diminishing the mini writers' rooms. rooms. The mini rooms, yeah. yeah. So instead of having a writer's room of, like, say, 68 people working on a show throughout the season, and uh, you know, you would do, you'd hire three or four writers to write all the scripts and then fire them. Right. And that's saving money, I suppose, but it's a kind of false economy because this is an apprenticeship system. People learn how to write drama and comedy and other by doing, and they learn how to be effective showrunners on set by being on set as writers. I mean, that's really what I've heard from a lot of WGA members is that this is about like paying it forward to the next generation. Because like you can't have the, the talent and know-how about like how to create a TV show unless you have people who have been there and done it. Absolutely. And like now there's not just not the money to pay the people of the next generation of TV writers. Right. But there's just like not going to be the know-how if you just treat people as disposable. And you know, like, yeah, absolutely. And the studio should recognize that they're setting a time bomb for themselves. Yeah. Because if you don't have a generation of new writers who are trained and know how to do it, you're going to hit into all kinds of cost overruns and delays on set as people freak out as they're learning on the job. So that's no good either. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's, I think that's really important. And obviously, you know, I'm, I'm 52 years old. I'm, I'm, you know, straight up Gen X. I remember complaining about the generation ahead of me not getting out of the fucking way so that we could live. Yeah. And and now truly, like, the wealth, the jobs, everything is so accumulated to a, an older generation and a very small percentage of wealth holders. People are scrambling. I wouldn't want to be a young person today. I mean, it's really, really challenging. And we owe it to them to fight now to make sure that there are... And this is across all industries, right? Yeah. And this is why there are all these, you know... UPS is striking and all the other industries that are about to strike go on strike. That's why it's important because young people are fucked. I, I wanted to ask you about that phrase that um, that comes up in one of the articles you wrote of de-skilling. And you're like, you talk about like de- what de-skilling means and how it's been broadly applied to labor everywhere, but how like it's, you know, how particularly it's being applied here in the entertainment industry in terms of things like mini rooms. Yeah. So de-skilling is, you know, the classic example historically that people use is the the Fortis um, assembly line, you know, auto workers that once were very skilled and could leverage that skill into higher wages and decent treatment. Um, Ford was a genius and he figured out how to break down their movements so that, you know, one guy was doing one wrench turn, the next guy was doing the next wrench turn and anybody could do that job, right? It didn't take training. It didn't take money. Rather than like a highly valued employee, like one guy who does a hundred jobs, you have one guy doing, no, it was a hundred guys doing one job. Exactly. And, and it's totally irreplaceable, right? If that guy is trouble, you can fire him and go out in the street and find someone new. And that's basically what they're doing to TV writing. You know, it, and I, I brought up the Mike Schur example because he went through kind of what the the before the de-skilling, what the job looked like. And he was describing, you know, it's not just sitting at a laptop, at a computer and typing. Um, it is also, you know, working with people, having mentorship like he had from the office's creator. 
It's bringing the script to set and talking to actors and directors, learning how electricians do their jobs. You know, if a camera operator teaches you what a camera can do, you can write that into your script. You can make use of actually uh, movie magic, as you might call it, Will. Uh, but without, you know, now you just have kids who are sitting in a room for on a two week contract um, typing and that's it. And anybody could do that. And they're paid so much less. These studios, are, they're, they're zealously guarding the movie magic. They're just doling out a little drop of it to, to each, of their, each of their drones. This is the thing is my fundamental view here is that if you think the movies and TV shows we get now suck, this is only going to get worse because now you're basically having, if not algorithms writing them, then people who are like working a day job and then going out and doing you know, Uber driving. Like those people cannot produce grand, great shows or, tele- or films. Yeah, I mean, actually, um, our friend Elena Smith, who is the uh, creator and showrunner of uh, Dickinson on Apple TV, wrote a really fantastic uh, piece today that I'm going to link to. It's called the, uh, uh, sorry, the uh, the Death Spiral of Hollywood Monopolies. And uh, what she says there is that in the mad rush off the digital cliff, these companies transformed Hollywood from a high-wage, high-profit, hits-driven industry into a low-wage, low-profit, subscription-driven one. Unregulated platform capitalism has already chewed up and spat out most of the 20th century's once profitable cultural industry, from music to journalism to books. People often blame the internet for this rampant destruction of livelihood, as if technology itself were some kind of demon. Um, like I, I think it's a it's a really concise summary of the forces at play here in this strike. But like I'm, I, I think again about AI and like the invocation of AI and the threat of it is real. But like. Is this just another way in which like a technological innovation arrives and then it's just it arrives, but at the same time, it's just replaced. It just becomes a name that um, employers and owners of capital will just use as the excuse for what they were going to do already, which is zero out labor costs as much as possible. I mean, yeah, definitely. That's what so many technologies have been used for, whether in film and television or elsewhere, right, is like. Well, we'll pretend that, you know, we had no choice. This is just technological advancement. It just gives them one more kind of structural thing to point to so they can say, well, look, the competition was going to do it, too. I mean, it's a very clear decades long um, trend here to undermining labor. And previous technological developments did that, too. Right. I mean, writers have struck, especially in Hollywood over the past you know, century over largely technological advancements. You know, they had to go out and strike to win any residuals. They had to win, you know, money from VHS and DVD. Like this is always any technology in the hands of the employer is used as a wedge to kind of hurt the worker. Um, And I think AI is just that. I mean, it's ridiculous to imagine that AI is going to write a TV show. Um, But what if the boss can say that, well, I'll hire, I'll use AI unless you accept lower pay. Then you might accept lower pay. I think that what's at stake here, honestly, is this as a real livable career. Um, I think the way that things are going, it's increasingly pushing into something that's much more like a gig economy, Mm -hmm. um, where you work maybe seven weeks out of the year, which is obviously unsustainable and um, impossible to make a living wage. And this used to be something that was a real job and a real career. Um, And I think the way that they have been pushing things forward, especially since the dawn of the streaming era, is to kind of increasingly diminish the role and the rights of the writers and, um, you know, essentially remove us from the process as much as possible so we are no longer uh, able to make a living doing this. 
another thing that you, you mentioned in your article, because you returned to the uh, the idea of like how nobody is a, nobody knows what anything is worth worth anymore because there is no like objective metric of like a box office or Nielsen ratings. Now it's just based on subscriptions, and if like if the your account is getting debited every month or it's growing, it doesn't really matter if people are actually watching what's on any of these platforms. You you talked about something called Parrot Analytics. Is this something that's being um, suggested as part of these negotiations? Is this like is this like Parrot Analytics is like a, a third party that does uh, like measure things like viewership? Yeah, Parrot Analytics is very confusing to me. I I would say it. I, I'm suspicious of it, but. SAG mentioned it in their proposal about a new viewership based residual because the studios won't share their numbers. Right. And so the Writers Guild's proposal for one of these for this viewer based um, residual is just you need to give us the numbers and we're going to calculate the residual so that we can enforce it. SAG sort of said we'd never expect you to give up these numbers. And so we propose using this third party company. And this company is sort of, you know, has Hollywood type people involved in it. And it's not that it's illegitimate. It like does approximate a show's success based on all sorts of metrics. Um, but there are two different approaches here that I think, you know, are just a, the only reason parent analytics is even mentioned is because the studios just won't share their numbers. And like, it's really, I'm not kidding when I say that you can be the most successful TV writer or show creator in the world. You will sit down with Netflix and they will, they won't write anything down. If you prod and you force them, they might say like, this number of eyes watched one episode of your show. They won't tell you if that's good or bad. They, so you have no idea what's a hit and what's not. Um, and you have no idea, you know, what kind of money you might deserve to share in. There's just no idea that if you're successful in the field, you get a cut of the profit. Um, that's not happening anymore. And the truth is, like, I, I didn't understand, you know, I haven't been on television a lot lately. Mostly I do my little podcast and keep my head down because, uh, you know, it's, people like listening to my voice more than they like looking at my face. You know, the, the work that I've done, I've, you know, I, I've noticed my own residual checks diminishing and diminishing and finding it a little bit hard to make ends meet as that, you know, that's the money that was negotiated in 1960, the last time the WGA and SAG went out on strike together to, to create residuals that would carry people over from gig to gig. This is kind of the original, one of the original gig economies. And you needed residuals, not just to build a life for yourself and, and keep food on the table between shows or between gigs, but also writers and actors, they create wealth out of nothing. Like their imaginations and their lived experiences create shows that make a lot of money for a lot of people. And, you know, everyone's got their role in this industry even the non-creatives, but it is a little obscene how much money people who don't make things are making in a creative enterprise. So you talked about um, how much money uh, they save on having just a second person um, there to read um, a script during an audition. I'm wondering um, if you've uh, heard any reactions to, or, or just in general, what people on the picket line make about some of the public statements made by some of these people like David Zaslav, who are, you know, others who, I think, I forget who said it, but recently they were bragging, or at least in public statements, about how much money this strike has saved them, and it's actually up to their bonuses because it keeps them, if you, you know, according to their contract, they get like X amount of money if they save this Y amount of money. Yeah, I mean, it's that is it's I think it's just bluster, right? Like 
if they didn't need shows or actors or TV writers, they absolutely wouldn't have them, right? If they could have done this with without having these people involved in their business, they'd just, you know, they would have already been firing these people long ago, right? And so I think it's bluster, just like they say when they're saying we're going to sit them out until they lose their houses. You know, they are desperately trying to get people back to work. Um, and I think, you know, they, they also say things like there's no money for these demands, like this would cost us too much money. This is tough times for everybody, um, but you look at them like Bob Iger is one of these guys that said something like this. He said like they were the writers were being unrealistic and the actors with their demands. And he did this from, you know, this this um, Sun Valley conference in Idaho that is known as Billionaires Summer Camp. Um, he's paid like <laughs> he's paid. I think he only made 15 million last year, which was a tough one for him because he'd m- been making almost 50 the year before. You know, David Zaslav, the hated guy, the Warner Brothers Discovery CEO, he only made 39 million last year, which is way down from 250 million the year before. Like there is no real sense that they they can continue with what they're doing forever. You know, there is a couple months here where the writers had a pipeline, you know, that they knew they were going to have to keep being on strike to have an effect. But when you don't have the actors, you can't do anything like you can't have premieres, you can't have movies, you can't have shows. Um, so I think it's affecting them a lot more severely now. Do you get a sense like when you think about guys like Bob Iger or Zaslav or any of these any of these guys, like you get the sense like what do they regard of like of their job as like producing value for the entertainment industry? Like what do they do that's that's important or that's worth thirty nine million dollars a year as opposed to like an actor on a successful TV show? I mean, I have this question about the executives of a lot of companies across all kinds of industries. <laughs> yeah. Like there is I wish I had it in front of me. There was some story reported in a David Zaslov like profile long ago or a few years ago where on his yacht, he had a bunch of celebrities. I don't know, Oprah, whoever was various famous rich people were on his yacht and they decided to watch an episode of Fleabag. Um, and there was some sort of scene that was like obscene, you know, some kind of sex was going on. I can't remember what exactly. And he was he paused it and said, we can't watch this. And then the group <laughs> said the group was like, no, let's watch it. And he had them hold a vote about whether they would skip the scene or they would watch it, but they can't talk to each other or something like this guy hates film and television. He doesn't like movies. He doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't like, like movies. This stuff. And so yeah. his job is just to be like sitting around in the mountains and on the yacht and knowing everybody and whining and dining people and also being a punching bag right now. Uh, and so that's what these guys do. And also it's what they've always done. These are, and often these guys, I mean, Zaslav's a little different. But the the comparison from the past is like everybody knows the big studio heads in Hollywood were always evil. Yeah, Louis B. Mayer, Daryl Zanuck, but they loved the pictures. They loved pictures. (laughs) And these guys clearly hate pictures. And so (laughs) what that means, I don't I couldn't tell you, um, but it obviously concerns the people who really love what they do. And that's why they went to work in film and TV. Uh, So that's that's what's going on here. I think that what's at stake for the industry is the entire industry right now. Uh, We are not being run by creatives. We're being run by people who only care about numbers, and they only care about those numbers if those numbers mean money. They don't care about the human beings creating the content. They don't care about the art that we are creating. They only care about whatever money they can get from whatever art we're creating. And we need to change that. We need to put... We need to put power back in the hands of the creatives. We need to have creativity be at the forefront of 
our media. We need to have, you know, industry and and quantity take a back seat in the name of quality. And right now, it's the it's the complete opposite. We have people in charge who want to fill their own pockets. They don't care about the art that's being created, and they care even less about the artists who are creating that art. They make money off our art, and we get paid absolutely nothing for it. We often feel like we are making incredible art in spite of the conditions that they're pushing. Um, not necessarily that those conditions are uh, conducive to making great art. I think, fortunately, artists are always going to want to tell stories, and we're going to find our own ways to do that. And um, if they are, you know, if it's going to become hostile to be working under this system, I think artists will move on and we'll find different ways to do this because we always will will make art. That's just what we do. So speaking of the uh, the old movie moguls and studio titans of yore, as compared to like the tech moguls who own and run everything today, um, early in like the old studio days, there the Entertainment, the studio monopolies were broken up by the government at one point because the studios of old, they were vertically integrated with the theaters in which the movies they produced played. And that was broken up as a monopoly back in the day was vertical integration. Outside of labor and like this, this current labor action and negotiations, do you find among the people on the picket line or just in, in general, is there a, da- a dawning consciousness about the need for perhaps state action to break up entertainment and these tech monopolies so that they cannot basically shade the difference between the production and distribution of entertainment. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely being discussed, right? I mentioned when I was talking about streamers not giving residual money that's the same as linear broadcast television was, it's because they're doing global self-distribution, right? So it is the the digital era version of a studio also owning the theater chain and just ensuring that it was blocking out its own movies there and sell it or selling the theater chain you know, they would sell them their hit, but they also had to buy their eight flops. And that is Netflix, right? That's exactly what Netflix is. It's like one thing <laughs> people want to see and 10,000 just just drivel, yeah. just sewage, just nonstop slop. And also because Netflix had such a head start on these other companies as far as developing a streaming platform, it bought a lot of their old material for cheap. Like The to- Office and Friends. That's how Netflix got became worth a trillion dollars was like a billion people watching The Office. Exactly. And so I think it's totally legitimate to to say that while it might look very different, the same concerns apply and and the same concerns hit back then as far as labor issues and inequality and kind of what's called like a monopsony employer where the if you're a worker you only have the option of one or two people and so you can't really negotiate a fair wage you kind of are it's up to you whether you're going to take it or leave it um i feel like one could argue that is now starting to happen in hollywood um and so i think i don't know what where that'll go but i think the strike has kind of heightened this sense that it's if these studios have been getting away with cheapening the price of labor it may be because they have too much power as a coordinated kind of group Yeah, my name is Max Calder. I'm a stuntman and a actor of 14 years. So we're right in front of the Netflix building here. Have you uh, have you worked for Netflix at all? I have, yeah. How'd you find the experience? I mean, on the day it was great. Like, uh, you know, they pay a good upfront wage, but the problem is the residuals. You know, we don't get nearly as many residuals as we did with other studios. Uh, like, you know, we're not really allowed to promote what we worked on, but I've worked on some of their major movies and television shows, and for the amount of value that those shows brought to the company, the residuals don't reflect that at all. But uh, some people, we rely on residuals just as much as actors, uh, especially if you get hurt. We might not be working for a while. Yeah. And then, you know, 
actors and stunt stunt performers were it's kind of like uh, the life of an athlete where you have a a certain lifespan and you know as you get older you try to reinvigorate your career and it kind of evolves and changes so you know it's an uphill downhill battle for everybody so it's important to have that uh that steady stream of reliable income that uh makes our lives easier this has been sort of like a summer of labor in a lot of respects we see like a, a lot of sort of like the kindling of a like nascent rejuvenation of strikes as 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 uh, and a collective bargaining as like a you know as a labor practice in this country now I know that like the WGA and SAG people on strike would are probably very likely to say that they regard themselves as being in solidarity with and part of like the same struggle against, you know, like the exploitation, exploitation by the owners of everything. But like, is that, is that sentiment shared by striking hotel workers or Amazon warehouse workers? I mean, like, is, is there a kind of cross union, cross trade solidarity here? Or is this kind of, I don't know, wishful thinking? I mean, it's not going to be the entire membership. I mean, most membership is not going to be super paying attention to other labor struggles all the time, but it totally is. I mean, I for, just to give one concrete example, I went to this rally in downtown L.A. one morning um, a few weeks ago outside of a UPS hub. This was before the UPS um, Teamsters, the 340,000 of them um, reached a tentative agreement with the company. So they were preparing to strike. And Sean O'Brien, their new president, was there speaking and there were a ton of actors and writers present. There were hotel workers. I met up with a bunch of these newly unionized Palmdale drivers who then, you know, we I hitched a ride with them out to Amazon Studios to join the picket line. And Sean O'Brien was there. Like there really is coordination going on. I talked to these these delivery drivers. It's not in the piece I wrote about them, but they were like, yeah, riders have been coming to our picket line. And like they're shocked that we do real picket lines like they're excited. They want to like get into fights. Um, which is not, you know, what the you know the theater kids generally do on their picket lines. Not to make fun of them. This I mean, so, they, they do snap fighting, like dance <laughs> fighting, like West Side Story. Yes, there was karaoke on the one of the picket lines at Paramount that I went to. Um, and so, of course, it's not going to be everybody, but like you don't need everybody, right? If you have the key people, the people who kind of are are keeping the pickets alive, are ensuring the strike stays alive, are actually getting to know each other and build trust. That is very important. And also, it's really different than how it used to be. You know, the biggest example in Hollywood right now is what the te the Hollywood Teamsters have been doing. You know, they shut down the the production of, of film and television by respecting the WGA's lines. Um, they did not do that when the writers struck in 2007. Right. So there's been some serious organization and building of ties between different types of workers. Yeah. Hard to hard to run a film set without Teamsters. <laughs> We were picketing WGA, we were actually shutting down productions. And that was really intense and cool and good because it was a show of force and power and union solidarity. Obviously, a Yahtzee and the Teamsters and all the other unions that are being affected by this work stoppage, having them stand in solidarity and refuse to cross our picket lines really reminded us, and I think frankly upped our game, that this is a part, one part of a major labor movement in the United States. It's long overdue across all industries. First of all, I think it's uh, engendered a sense of solidarity with the, with the entertainment industry that now we've seen the Teamsters stand with us. We want to stand with them. A lot of us were at those rallies. So I think there's just the, the reality of it's made a lot more people aware of how, how much we can get done when we organize and how important it is to keep an eye out on other industries that are about to go on strike and ways that you can support them and stand with them. So 
in one way, they've actually ignited uh, maybe 150,000 people mm -hmm. to understand the power of striking and what that has meant. Um, and yeah, I think like I'm the first person to get defensive about like, I know what we do. It seems like it's all like fun and dreams. But reality, like even if you're a champagne tester, you should be paid fairly for the work that you do. Like, it shouldn't matter that the job is fun or that it's dreamy or parts of it are really glamorous. It really shouldn't matter. If your labor creates wealth, you should have a share of that wealth. Uh, you know, what we always say is if you have a boss, you are a worker. So we are part of the labor movement. And when labor stands up like this, it's a win for labor everywhere because we are setting a precedent that you deserve to be paid fairly. You deserve to be compensated. If the work you're making is profitable, you deserve to share in the profits. And um, that goes for everybody in every single industry. So I think that, you know, we are in a time where the wealth gap between the 1% and the 99% are increasing rapidly. And it seems like, you know, CEO pay has gone up a thousand percent in the past 70 years or so. And worker pay has gone up 18 percent. Uh, so that wealth divide is unacceptable. And that's in our industry and that's in every industry. So it's the same fight. I guess the last thing I, I have to say on this is I want to return to something. Uh, I think a very important point um, made by uh, Elena Smith in the piece she wrote. And that, and that speaking of like, and speaking just specifically about the kind of like how the streaming monopoly platform model has been a disaster at every level from the people who own these streaming platforms to the people who work for them and to the people who just like movies and television to be on TV or having something good to watch is that it sucks for everybody. And I guess, like, I would just apply that, like, not just to the your stories and the, the cinema or on TV, but, like, basically, like, when it comes to things like, I don't know, having something delivered to your house when you want it to or having a hotel room, it really does pay to go with the union card. That's right, Will. <laughs> I'm really not more of a comment <laughs> than a question. Uh, uh, any, any final thoughts, Alex? Uh, no, I think you asked me quite a bit. You know, I... Uh... I wish I was still in L.A. There's like a whole new strike that has started today of the city workers, 11,000 of them. Um, but there was only so many days I could be riding beside a pool before I felt like I had to go back to New York and sit in my tiny apartment. I will be taking your place tomorrow. <laughs> nice. Well, safe travels. Alex Press, um, if people would like to um, find some more of your coverage or writings, where should they uh, go? Um, well, I guess the best way to do it is you could follow me on Twitter or Instagram at Alex N Press. Most of my writing's at Jacobin Magazine, but some of it uh, is elsewhere. So I'd follow me on social media. Uh, we will include the links to uh, the articles I mentioned in this episode in the show in the show description. So uh, once again, Alex Press, thank you for your time. Yeah, thanks, Will. Where any office boy or young mechanic can be a panic with just a good-looking pan. And any shop girl can be a top 